Well, right now, I'm happy to say we are joined by Dr. Jack Rasmus, who is a professor emeritus of economics at St. Mary's College in Morago, California. Jack, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure to join you. Yeah, great to have you back. You've been here several times, and we always appreciate talking with you. I just want to say that tonight uh, the plan is for you to reflect on the economic developments of the past year, 2022, that is, and then offer some predictions, if you can, if it's even possible for economists to, to do that kind of magic, on what we might expect in 2023. But I'd like to set the tone for this discussion, actually, by reading a quote from one of your recent podcasts, which I think is very excellent way to frame the conversation that we're probably going to take here. And the quote follows, there are economists whose role is to justify certain powerful economic interests, and they manipulate economic ideas, theories, and data. This is what we call the ideology of economics, as opposed to the science of economics. The science of economics is where you observe reality, and inductively, you make your conclusions based on those observations. On the other hand, ideological or ideology-based economics relies on deductive reasoning. That is, you state a conclusion and then you go out and look for and cherry pick the evidence to confirm your conclusion. A lot of mainstream economics is built on just that. Establish a conclusion and then cherry pick the evidence to support it. So I think that's important to say because we as consumers of the media and turn on even a station like MSNBC, the economists and the economic analysis we hear tends to be of that variety, the deductive type, where conclusions are basically a given, and then the data that people bring to the argument are, as as you mentioned in this quote, cherry-picked and sometimes manipulated. So from that premise, and with those two approaches laid out, What might be the solutions that are proposed by each one of those? As we look back on 2022 and forward to 2023, how might we frame this conversation with those thoughts in mind? Well, just to uh, comment on on the point you make, uh, ideology and economics, uh, for example, to give it a little more concrete uh, context here, um, you know, Business tax cuts always create jobs. You've heard that one. Uh, Not much evidence to that. Uh, Free trade always benefits all parties. You've heard that one. Inflation is always and everywhere the result of too much money chasing too few goods. Income inequality is because uh, people don't go out and increase their personal productivity to get themselves a share of the growing uh, pie. Et cetera, et cetera. You know, those are ideological statements, examples of deductive reasoning. You start with that and then you justify that. I wrote an article some time ago of ideology and economic uh, applications of ideology and and, uh, economic policy, which, you know, I investigated and came up with an explanation, I think, of of how that works, Uh, manipulating ideas. Uh, in order to justify uh, certain conclu- pre- predetermined conclusions. Now, those predetermined conclusions 
are often, uh, if you go far enough, uh, in the interest of uh, certain segments of society, usually uh, corporations or the very wealthy or so forth. So there's always a class basis uh, to ideology in economics. But I always try to uh, look at it from the bottom up. And I'm not saying all mainstream economists are ideological. <laughs> it's a degree usually of uh, ideological bias, and some are more honest than others. Uh, some of them are um, ignorantly dishonest. They don't even know they're being dishonest. Uh, so, you know, that's just a comment on the important point that you initially made. Uh, picking up your, your second idea here, you know, what are my views of where the economy has been and where it's going. Uh, as an economist, as a political economist, uh, I always believe my role was uh, to, to predict uh, what good is an economist who can't predict the future, <laughs> uh, even if it's risky and sometimes you're wrong. Too many mainstream economists <clears throat> are interested in uh, predicting the present uh, <laughs> rather than the future because it's safer. Uh, and they simply follow what uh, their colleagues say so they don't get out of the mainstream consensus and if they're wrong uh, you know they get peer pressure and uh, they don't get promoted they don't get tenure etc cetera, etc cetera. so a lot of academic economists and business economists uh, you know you don't want to predict the wrong thing uh, uh, because you know your job employment may not be that secure <laughs> if you keep doing it wrong uh, well i don't have those constraints i never have and I believe uh, in saying it like it is and making predictions. So I do have predictions. I make predictions every year uh, as to where the U.S. and global economies are going. Uh, but they've got to be based upon where they've been uh, to a large extent. Uh, prediction is based upon uh, historical uh, evidence. Uh, and the more recent the historical evidence, the more weight it takes. Uh, and But there's also you know, unforeseen new developments that occur in the next year. And uh, all you can do is make your best estimation of what the, those new developments might be. But most of them are an extension or uh, a consequence of, of what has been. So I look at both and uh, make a reasoned judgment as to where things uh, might be going. Of course, if you look at where we've been, uh, let's take the USA economy first. Then we can talk about some global views. Uh, the U.S. economy, obviously, in the past year, uh, has been afflicted by severe inflation. The consumer price index has, uh, you know, varied between uh, seven and ten percent at different times. Even the consumer price index, I think, is underestimating the economy by one to one and a half percent. But let's let's stick with the CPI. And the CPI, of course, in recent months has been in the 7 to 8% range in the U.S. It's been higher abroad. So the question is, uh, what has been driving inflation? What are the causes of inflation? Well, Jack, uh, if that, I might interject, also, what are some of the explanations for inflation that have been put forward by mainstream economists, the, the folks who we see on C CNBC, we can maybe compare those kinds of analyses to, I think, what you will present to us. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, you know, when we had COVID here and everything was shut down, of course, uh, the economy and prices were shut down. But when we started opening up, uh, there were two openings, one in the summer of 2021 that pretty much precipitated 
the inflation of the fall of 2021. And then we have the second bout that occurred here uh, in the spring of this year, 2022. Now, if you are a Republican or a pro-business or a conservative or something, you'll say that, oh, inflation is because people got too much money. Uh, the government gave them too much to spend, and the savings rate went way up. And uh, when the economy opened up, uh, they had all this excess money to spend, and they started spending it. So in other words, economists, we would say that's demand-driven inflation uh, due to um, uh, the COVID relief programs. Uh, I've never believed that. To some extent, there's a small maybe one to two percent contribution to inflation uh, from that and reopening the economy. Uh, You know, when you reopen the economy, how much of it uh, price increases is due to people started spending again? How much is due to uh, COVID uh, relief? And and one one point there is that I think that we have to sort of remember that people like me (laughs) who have a hard time understanding these things need to be reminded. So when there's too much demand, this is the classical economic theory, when there's too much demand and there isn't enough supply, so then the people who control the supply have to raise their prices. Is that the explanation that we're talking about here? Uh, yeah, it can be uh, insufficient supply or excess demand. Uh, the two aren't really uh, mutually exclusive. Right. But, you know, when when the economy began to open up, if you recall, uh, around September of 2021, we had this problem with uh, supply chains. In other words, uh, yeah, people were now beginning to spend some money in the summer of 21, uh, but um, we couldn't get the goods. The supply chains, the global supply chains had broken down. Companies uh, shut down, laid off, got rid of workers, both, you know, in shipping and in manufacturing and transport and so forth. And there was a problem getting goods from from Asia. Uh, The shipping uh, and the ports were all clogged and so forth, if you remember. Uh, So is that a demand problem because people wanted to buy stuff? Or is that a supply problem uh, because the goods were just not there? The supply chains were broken by covid And it's taken quite a while for them to heal, and they're still not totally healed. So we would, I would say that's a supply side problem, not a demand problem. It wasn't because people had too much money from relief. It was because the goods just weren't there. So I come down on the supply side as being uh, more of a contribution to inflation than the demand side. It's not just global supply chains. There were domestic supply chain problems, too, uh, behind it. For example, uh, the railroads shut down a lot, you know, a lot of their operation, not, not totally. They laid off 30% of their workforce, uh, and they never really brought that full workforce back. So you had a problem of uh, labor supply. Uh, you had the problem in the warehouses and in the ports uh, and in the transport sector. Okay, Uh, I mean, whose fault is that? Is it people spending too much because they got too much money or is it uh, corporations, uh, you know, uh, not doing what they need to do uh, to get the goods flowing? Then, of course, on the supply side, we have the problem of uh, of the sanctions, Biden sanctions, the G7 sanctions on Russia, particularly on, on energy, but not just energy, oil and gas. Uh, but also on um, industrial commodities, a lot of which come out of Russia. For example, uh, a lot of metals come out of Russia. Nickel, 
palladium, which are needed for car produ- uh, production, uh, batteries, and so forth. That was sanctioned. Uh, and then agriculture, if you remember, agriculture was, was sanctioned by Russia. A lot of wheat comes out of Russia and Ukraine, and uh, also fertilizers uh, come out of uh, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, they've called, these are commodities. We call these in, industrial and agricultural commodities, and oil and gas are commodities as well. Now, the problem with global commodities is not just you have the sanctions which reduce the supply, uh, but you have global speculators. In other words, if you want to buy commodities, if you're a business or a broker or whatever, you have to bid for and buy them uh, in these global markets. And speculators are financial people who control the supply and uh, drive up the price. Uh, even before there's a supply problem, if they just think it's coming, uh, they drive up the price for oil and gas and industrial metals and agriculture and so forth. So that was going on as well, and it's still going on to, to some extent. So you have uh, a supply problem uh, in the fact that these commodities, which, by the way, can only be bought with U.S. dollars. In other words, all oil and gas virtually before uh, the sanctions and industrial commodities, agricultural commodities are bought and sold with dollars. So you've got to buy dollars if you're another country in order to buy these things. And if the value of the dollar is going up, well, then you've got dollar driven inflation. Well, you know, uh, what drives up the dollar? The Federal Reserve raising interest rates drives up the price of the dollar, which drives up uh, inflation in global commodities. You see, it's getting a little complex now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. One one yeah. second, Jack, before we continue, I want to reintroduce you. We're speaking with Dr. Jack Rasmus. He's a professor emeritus in economics from St. Mary's College in Morago, California, which is in the Bay Area. And I also want to mention that you're listening to WPKN in Bridgeport, 89.5 FM, and streaming online at WPKN. My name is Richard Hill. All right, onward. Yeah, I think I think that's very interesting, that point, and that is that not only have we sort of put a chokehold on the commodities, as you say, all these different things, wheat, grain, oil, gas, minerals, and other things that do come out of Russia. We put a, I'm not sure if it's a total curtailment, but it's, it's a significant chokehold. There's not only that factor, which limits the supply chain, which would ultimately result in inflation in the United States from lack of supply, but also the fact that speculators are bidding up the price of these things, which adds a whole new layer of inflationary energy to this to the situation. Sorry for the interruption. Yeah. Let's go back to yeah. Dr. Jack Erasmus. Uh, I'm not through yet with supply driven <laughs> uh, price inflation. Okay, uh, there's another factor here. And that's simply corporate price gouging uh, with uh, these other forces driving up supply, largely due to, to supply reasons, uh, sanctions and supply chains, and to some extent demand, okay, but mostly supply. Uh, now you've got uh, monopolistic corporations in the U.S. know that the prices are rising and they take advantage of it. And uh, they raise their prices using the cover of the global inflation. In other words, monopolies, monopolistic price gouging going on in a whole number of industries, uh, not just the oil, gas uh, industry, 
Uh, but if you look at meat packing, the price of food, well, you've got three or four major meat packers. And uh, how about baked goods, uh, you know, bread and stuff like that? Well, again, you've got three or four major producers. Same with uh, a whole number of other industries. So you've got price gouging overlaid on top of these other supply-side global chains, sanctions, Biden sanctions, you know. But so one thing that's always surprised me is how coming out of uh, the COVID that we started, COVID situation, uh, barely coming out, and the economy was was very bruised here, uh, that Biden would jump into sanctions on Russia, which had the effect of driving up all these other commodity prices and oil prices, uh, right on top of, uh, you know, the economy not really having healed. Uh, history would show that uh, th- this, you know, from a purely economic point of view, uh, was uh, a strategic mistake. I'm still not through with the forces driving uh, prices here. Now you've got, on top of that, uh, rising unit labor costs. What are those? Uh, well, a unit labor cost for a business, and all businesses have unit labor costs, which determine their pricing strategy. Uh, unit labor costs are not only caused by wages and other kinds of price increases, you know, resources, whatever, it's also caused by falling productivity. And U.S. productivity uh, during COVID and after is in the shambles. It's coming down. It's falling. So there's this pressure, not just from wages, which is minimal, I think, in most industries, but from collapsing productivity, driving corporations, whether they're monopolistic or not, to raise their costs. In other words, raise their prices to cover their rising costs. So you've got all of these forces, and there's supply-side forces that are at play here. And I believe at least 60%, two-thirds of the inflation we've had is supply-side driven. Maybe a third of it is demand-driven. And as a result, uh, the Fed is raising interest rates, but the Fed can only dampen demand-driven inflation by causing layoffs and people having less income and therefore less consumption. So the Fed is raising interest rates and it's beginning to bite uh, certain industries uh, and we're beginning to see layoffs. And that's exactly what the Fed wants. Uh, But the Fed can do nothing about these supply side driven problems. And Fed Chair Powell has admitted that in his press conferences. He, He gives it a quick one over and then he goes on and talks about how he's going to uh, address demand-side inflation. So, in a sense, if most of the inflation supplied with and sanctions and chains and so forth, uh, but we're going to attack wage incomes, he's kind of making the victims of inflation pay the price of inflation, even though they're not the, the cause of the inflation. Can Normally. I interject one thing? This... Raising of interest rates, which, as you point out, slows the economy, leads to layoffs, and ultimately probably slides us right into a uh, recession in the coming months. To me, it sounds sort of like somebody has cancer and you give them chemotherapy, you know, which practically kills them in the process of trying to heal them. Is that a good analogy here? That's a nice metaphor. Yeah. Chemotherapy economics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> There, there's, there's some truth to that, uh, and I've been trying to point that out, that Fed solution of rising interest rates, you know, has a limited effect 
here. It whacks certain industries uh, and it takes it out on the back of workers and small businesses, the cause of which has has little or relatively little to do uh, with demand side and too much income. You know, the problem is not too much income. Uh, I mean, if you look right now, we had this inflation here in the last uh, several months kind of escalated. And it can't be too much savings. In other words, too much money given to people during COVID relief because the savings rate is now one half of what it was before COVID. It's only like two and a half percent savings rate. You know, so it can't be people have too much money <laughs> and they're spending too much. You know, it, it's got to be other factors here. And, and it can't be government spending for social programs because those have been discontinued here. Uh, as of, uh, you know, December of last year, um, pretty much, uh, you know, all the COVID relief programs uh, have, have been shut down. So, you know, where is the inflation coming from? Well, you know, once again, I think it's, uh, lagging supply chain problems, price gouging by monopolistic corporations, uh, unit labor costs uh, rising, uh, commodities uh, because of sanctions and the war. These are all the forces that are you know really driving the inflation. Supply let, let me side. ask you one more question. This unit labor cost, can we go back to that and, and just unpack it a little bit? Because it sounds sure. so abstract. So what are we talking about? You mentioned worker pro- productivity in there. And even the, the term productivity, I think, needs to be explained a little bit to the layperson. What is all that about? Well, every business has a cost per unit of whatever they produce and sell, right? Oh, I see. They okay. know that it costs me, it costed so much for wages, so much for interest, so much for all these factors that go into reducing all, all businesses do this kind of accounting, right? Per unit unit means whatever it is that they're selling. Right. Uh, now unit labor costs are a function of wage increases and other cost increases to some extent, uh, and productivity. What is productivity? Productivity is, uh, the amount of, of, uh, output and in other words, whatever goods there you produce, given the number of people you have employed. Uh, So if your productivity uh, goes down, that means uh, whatever number of people you have, uh, you're producing less with them. Or conversely, if you hire more people, but you're not producing any more, okay, your productivity is not rising. Well, productivity declines largely because business investment declines or slows down. And of course, that's been going on. Uh, so unit labor costs are, are a factor, one of many, uh, that's now driving up prices uh, across the board here for businesses in general. I see. But we, we should talk more about uh, Fed monetary policy. Now, uh, Fed monetary policy, you know, we know interest rates have been risen significantly accelerated over the past year. The Fed has risen three quarters of 1% four times in a row and then 50, a half percent and a quarter percent. Uh, so now we have what we call the Fed benchmark rate called the federal funds rate that other interest rates uh, are, are in turn change in relation to, you know, that's approaching 5%, uh, the basic federal funds rate. Other interest rates, uh, you know, prime rate and so forth would be on top of that. Mortgages on top of that, right? Now, 
the Fed is raising its interest rates on short term, you know, is at the low end, uh, low end being, uh, you know, 90 day bills, uh, one year bonds, notes, five year notes, 10 year bonds and so forth. They're raising the Fed's raising the interest rates. Well, that is causing a slowdown now in certain industries, most notably in housing, which is, uh, you know, really in the old runs about a half or 60% of what it normally is, new houses being produced and sold, right? And the Fed is also selling off what it calls its debt load, what's called the balance sheet. And uh, that, of course, is also causing rates to rise. Now, the interesting thing I've talked about for a number of years is that in the 21st century, the Federal Reserve, the central bank, and other central banks raising their interest rates to slow down the economy, right, is becoming less effective in slowing down the economy. In other words, they've got to raise their rates more and more to get a corresponding slowdown. Vice versa, if you want to stimulate the economy by lowering interest rates, that is not as effective as historically it used to be either. So Fed monetary policy, rate policy, is not as effective in either stimulating the economy like we did after 2009-10 or slowing down the economy as we're doing now. Monetary policy, which we call interest rate policy, Federal Reserve policy, is not all that effective anymore. But this is the number one policy that the government is relying on in order to control inflation. So bottom line, what I say, and this is a prediction, the Fed action of raising rates now, uh, which will continue to go up, maybe not quite as fast, will continue to go up in the first half of this year. That will slow down the economy somewhat in certain industries like housing worse than others. And that will bring down demand-driven inflation. But we still will have supply-side problems so that the inflation, if it's 7 to 8% now in the U.S., I predict we'll come down to about four. Uh, in other words, the Fed can shake out demand-side inflation, but it isn't going to be able to shake out the supply-side problems we talked about contributing to inflation very well. So we're still going to have about 4%. Before this whole economic turbulence started vis-a-vis COVID and the aftermath, the inflation rate was, as I recall, it was between 1% and 2%. Annually, is that right? Yeah, they couldn't even get it up to two percent. The Fed kept trying, and they could by stimulating, by pumping money into the economy. And by the way, how much did the Fed pump into the economy once COVID began? In other words, since March 2020, how much? Five trillion dollars. The Fed dumped five trillion dollars into the economy. It had dumped four and a half trillion back in 2008, nine during that crisis. And it never took the money back out, you see. So its debt, its balance sheet, as we call it, was four, four and a half trillion dollars. And now in March 2020, they throw five trillion more on top of that. So nine trillion dollars Federal Reserve debt. Now, that's totally different than the national debt that Congress and, you know, spending. That's the Fed's debt on top of the regular what, $28 trillion now. Now, it's interesting, you know, and people should listen to this. 
The Fed has pumped $5 trillion into the economy in a little over two and a half years, right? Uh, the COVID relief programs, the spending programs, the fiscal programs and tax cuts has amounted to about at least $3 trillion more, maybe even more than that. So fiscal policy, which is government spending, plus Fed monetary policy, has been about $8 trillion to $9 trillion in the last two years. And what kind of stimulus and growth have we gotten from it? Well, as the Federal Reserve Chairman Powell said a week or so ago, the GDP growth number for this year will be one half of 1%. And next year, maybe one half of 1% as well. So for $9 trillion, we got almost stagnation. Think about that. Think about that a minute, minute, because what this means, and I've been saying all along, is that monetary policy and fiscal policy have lost their effectiveness largely, not totally, but largely in stimulating the economy and also in slowing down the economy. Going forward, this is going to be very interesting here in the year to come as we go into another recession, which is pretty much a consensus even among your mainstream economists. And the fiscal spending stimulus doesn't work very well. And by the way, even if it doesn't work very well, you're not going to see any social spending because now we've got all this war defense spending crowding it out. Right. And the monetary policy is restrictive to try to deal with inflation. So you're not going to see stimulative monetary policy. Nothing's going to stimulate the economy. And even if you did, it's, largely ineffective now, going into this next recession. What you think about that? Let me ask you, what are the alternatives here? I mean, should we look back to the early 1970s when Richard Nixon imposed wage price controls or back to the New Deal when FDR had some kind of a voucher system which just basically stopped price rising and gouging in its tracks. Is that something that's a realistic alternative now? Well, the alternative should uh, address the causes, right? If most of the inflation is due to supply side and global issues like chains, supply chains and price gouging by monopolistic corporations and sanctions, and the war, well, then if you want to bring down inflation, you should address those problems. You should address the supply chains instead of, as the Biden administration is doing, trying to bifurcate uh, the world economy into us versus them, right? Uh, Or the sanctions on Russia, they keep commodity prices uh, raging. Uh, You should deal something with the uh, global speculators and the monopolistic price gouges in the U.S., Right. Uh, You should do something about productivity here by forcing corporations to invest and expand and hire people instead of investing in financial asset markets, you know, and making profits from financial speculation. If you want to do something about inflation, you address those causes. But they don't want to address those causes because addressing those causes means you're going to have to go after corporations and the capitalists who are responsible for this. And they're not going there, you see. Instead, they're going to go and take it out on the back of uh, the worker and the small businessman, which is exactly what they did back in 1980 under Ronald Reagan. This is a, a repeat of what happened in 81, 82 going on, this policy. In other words, 
take it out on the back of demand for what's really a supply side problem here that has to do with the global economy. But it's a, it's a problem of our making, you see. It's a problem of not doing anything about the price gouges, one, not doing anything about the oil companies, you know, like an excess profits tax and slow them down, uh, not to do uh, anything about the sanctions or the global speculators, not doing anything about ensuring productivity increases by ensuring investment in, in real real goods and, and expansion. And then the dollar, which causes global inflation, which is driven up by the Federal Reserve. Actually, the appreciation of the dollar dampens our inflation, but it exacerbates inflation in the rest of the world economies. Do something about that. You see, that's yep. where the problem is. That's very clear as you stated it. Once again, we're speaking with Dr. Jack Rasmus, who is a professor of economics, and he brings us his analysis here periodically, and it's an important time, right? Return of the year, looking back at 2022 and forward to 2023. It's very interesting to see this kind of cusp between the two years. You know, you mentioned the oil companies, and they both Exxon and Chevron had record-breaking profits this year of multiple billions of dollars, far exceeding the previous year. Now, what about a windfall profits tax? How might that mitigate what we're experiencing now with inflation and also providing money to perhaps offset the $110 billion, which the United States is pouring into the Ukraine war, which God knows where that money's coming from, but apparently it's definitely going to deplete any funding that, as you pointed out, for social programs. So a windfall profits tax, is that a viable or... That's one tool, one tool of many uh, that are needed here addressing the problem. You know, uh, 110, uh, $111 billion Ukraine uh, war aid so far. Another $45 billion increase in the Pentagon budget already, which is going to go up because the House will always, uh, Congress always adds to what Biden and the president wants. He wants $45 billion, a total of $853 billion in Pentagon only. Okay, is that our total defense spending? No. Our total defense spending includes the Pentagon plus the cost of all the oil and fuel that the military uses. That's tucked away in the Energy Department budget, not the Pentagon budget, uh, plus the development of, uh, of uh, nuclear weapons. That's in the Atomic Energy Department, plus the private uh, mercenary cost, uh, the NSA and the CIA, plus Homeland Security. Plus 50 to 75 billion off budget that they never report about for next generation uh, weapons, plus the higher interest on the debt. Now, you put all that together, that's the true war defense spending in the United States, and that's about $1.1 trillion a year now. You know, and the total budget, $1.7 trillion, uh, you know, proposed here by Biden. So $1.1 trillion, that's like two thirds of the total government spending and budget and the more it spends on war which it's you know running out of control uh the less it spends on other social programs and if they're increasing their war spending this year you know they're not going to increase uh their social program spending in fact they're going to start cutting social spending uh, and they're probably going to go after some elements of social security initially here next year 
And, and this isn't new. This is exactly what happened under Obama. Uh, Obama in 2009 put forth a, a $787 billion rescue plan, right? That was his rescue plan. Two years later, in August 2011, he agreed with the Republicans to take out of the economy one and a half trillion dollars in program cuts. So what they give during a crisis, they eventually take back and then some later. That's called austerity, you see. Well, you've got war spending rising the way it has been and will continue because this war in Ukraine isn't going away. It's going to get worse. Well, then it's going to have incredible pressure on austerity and social program spending cuts. And that's coming. That's uh, one of my predictions for, for next year. Further war spending. And now they're going to start going after austerity social programs to help pay in part for it all. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the House, of course, controlled by a band of <laughs> strange creatures, euphemistically known as Republicans, they're going to propose all kinds of cuts and they're going to try to uh, ram through these things. But the ultimate veto pen, I think, is going to come into play. And I don't think Biden is going to allow cuts to social programs such as they are now. What do you think about that? Well, uh, he's also going to want to show that he did something in the last two years of his term. <laughs> so he, he, like Obama, will come to terms, make a devil's compromise in order to show that he did something, but he's going to have to give up a lot, just like Obama did. Uh, and I, I think you're going to see something similar. Uh, you're going to see certain cuts. Uh, and, and they'll spin it like, oh, it's not a cut. It's we're saving a program, right? Mm-hmm. For example, Social Security, I think there's a consensus to raise the retirement age from 67 to probably 69, 70, uh, and maybe back, uh, back loaded to uh, the year after the uh, 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 next election and so forth. They like to back load these uh, so an uh, SSDI, Social Security, disability, they'll cut that. Uh, th- there'll be ways in which they spin it, and the mainstream media will try to make it look good, too. Uh, but the net result will, will be what it is. For example, let me give you a concrete example of, of just that that's just happened. This so-called uh, uh, Retirement Secure 2.0 Act has just passed, right, where they're forcing uh, workers uh, whether you got the uh, discretionary uh, income or not, uh, you're going to be automatically enrolled in 401k plans, automatically. And uh, it will start with a 3% contribution. Now, the government will throw in money on top of that, but your wages will be reduced by 3%. And uh, within five years, that's going to continue to rise. So your wages, your nominal take-home pay will be reduced between 3 and 15% um, over the rest of the decade. Now, that's a wage cut. Uh, they're going to force you uh, to retire. Now, most people, over a majority of people, uh, can't afford to make contributions to 401ks. Uh, they're living paycheck to paycheck. And you're going to take a wage cut. And by the way, they're taking a real wage cut with inflation at 8 9%. And they're only maybe getting a 3% raise. Well, that's a wage cut, too. All that's going to have a negative impact on consumption and therefore uh, on GDP and, and recession. But that's just an example of how they will make it look like, oh, we're doing, we're saving, uh, uh, you know, you for retirement. Uh, but, yeah, net result is you're paying more for it. 
when you can't afford it. Uh, and, and that's what they'll do with uh, austerity programs and uh, Social Security and some other measures that they're cooking up right now. Basically, uh, he'll want and the Democrats will want to look like they uh, compromise and they did something. Yeah. Republicans are, are, in my opinion here, with what's going on with this uh, Republican Party and in the House in particular here, I don't think they're going to be that interested in uh, programs that that deal with the economy. Oh, that might change if we have a deep recession, which I think is coming. But they're going to be mostly preoccupied with hearings against Biden and Fauci and Ukraine and uh, and COVID and all that stuff. They're they're you know because the right wing is getting uh, even stronger in the Republican Party, as we could see even today. Even McCarthy of all people can't mm-hmm. get himself elected, right? So you're going to have some more right wingers, and they make issues about border and immigration and uh, more cops for crime and local school control and uh, all that uh, will be what the Republicans will want to talk about, rather than dealing with the real issues of the economy. This is all what I call the great distraction. You see, yeah. uh, all these issues are to distract American voters and workers and business people from uh, the real issues. You know, if you keep fighting over these non-economic issues, you know, there's some basis for that. I'm not saying that they're totally uh, fabricated, uh, but, uh, you know, business can get what it wants. And what it wants is uh, what it got under Trump, which was four and a half trillion dollars in tax cuts over the mm-hmm. coming decade. And if you remember all this COVID build back better programs by uh, Sanders and all that, right, that they were, they were trying to push. And uh, Biden and Pelosi gave that the deep six at the end of 21. Uh, they, they shut that down. You know, they, they, they shut that down because they don't want to spend any more on social programs. And uh, they're in agreement that now we got to start spending on, on war. Yeah. And we got to do something about the deficit. Just just make a brief statement about recession here. We, we had the, the global, uh, the U.S. economy contract in the first half of this year. It had a real mild recovery in the second half. And, you know, the net for the year is, is one half of 1%. And going into the next year, uh, the forecast is, uh, the mainstream forecast in the Fed is only one half of 1% growth. Well, I think it's going to be uh, a negative uh, situation. We're going to go deeper into recession here in uh, the first half of this this year, and then uh, I don't think we're going to recover as quickly as some say in the second half. Mm, okay, well there it is, the prediction. <laughs> he made it. He had the courage to do it. Let's see what happens. Jack Rasmus, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you for joining us once again here on WPKN, and we will wish you the best. Before you go, just mention some links to your podcasts and other materials that you have online. Right. Uh, you can uh, follow me uh, on, on my blog, simply jackrasmus.com. My uh, radio show, Alternative Visions on Progressive Radio Network, every Friday uh, at 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, you can uh, get my post podcast of that on podbean.com. Uh, uh, you can follow me day to day where I tweet uh, on you know events of the day here, very short term, uh, on Twitter at uh, Dr. Jack Rasmus. So those are the best ways to follow me. If you really want to get into my books and reviews and everything, then you can go to my website, which is uh, kyklosproductions.com, K-Y-K-L-O-S productions.com. Uh, my forthcoming book, 
is the viral economy and its aftermath. Um, Lexington books uh, next year will be coming. Excellent. Very good. Thank you for that. We will hope to speak to you again in the near future. Yeah, we can talk about the global economy. We never even scratch that. Yep. That's another topic. That's important. Thank you, Jack Rasmus. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. That's Jack Rasmus. He's a professor emeritus in economics at St. Mary's College in California.